Now uh, I invite you to kneel with me. Let's have a, uh, a word of prayer together and we'll get into uh, the second part of our study here. So uh, if you can, I invite you to kneel with me and let's have a word of prayer together. <clears throat> Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy holy name. Father, we come before you on bended knee, and we praise you for uh, for who you are. John tells us that you are love, you are agape. Uh, You um, esteem others better than yourself. And being God, that's remarkable uh, for us to contemplate. uh, uh, But we've experienced that it is true. You've... You allowed your son to come here and die for, for lost man, a lost race, for each of us. Uh, what love. And so, Father, we praise your holy name, especially on this Sabbath day. And, Lord, we, we thank you so much for your, your wonderful blessings that you continually um, share and pour out upon each one of us. You give us places to live and, and uh, a way to, to gain wealth and to uh, work to do. And, and Lord, we... We thank you and praise you. And, and even those things that we may not recognize right now, we praise you for those things. You look after us, especially even while we're asleep. We don't know what's going on, but you send angels to watch over us and keep us safe. Father, we're thankful for the truth of the, the Bible that you've preserved for us who live here in the end of time and, and for the, the prophet that you sent to your people. And so, Lord, we thank you so much that you, you want us to know the difference between uh, truth and error. And you've made all things possible for us to, to, to know that difference. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit that you send to help us in our daily walk and help us as we study your word. And we pray for that spirit now. We're studying an important topic of uh, what the Bible says, how it defines who the church is. And so we pray for your guidance in, in that area. And Father, we praise your name for springtime, for uh, a renewal in nature, and that we can uh, get outside and we can uh, plant our gardens and we can look at uh, the beautiful flowers and, and the blooming trees and hear the birds singing praise to you. Uh, we start our mornings that way and it, uh, and it uh, is a joy. It is a joy. We thank you, Father, for that. Father, we lift up before you uh, those within the household of faith, there's some who are feeling ill. Jerry, we know, up in church in Battle Creek, we pray that you'd be very near to her. She's in a kind of a stressful situation with the housing. We pray that you will be with her family and they can work something out. Um, we pray for uh, our families, Lord, for marriages. Satan has been attacking nonstop for years and years and years, and it's... it's uh, it's uh, working, these attacks. And so, Lord, we pray for angels to be uh, with our, our families and with, um, with uh, our children especially. Uh, be with our students. There are some who are on uh, missionary trips, who are on class trips. We pray that you'll give them travel mercies and be with them, keep them safe, be with the staff. May they be a shining light to those around as they work in the field. Uh, Lord, we pray that you'll be with Deb's client, continue to be with her. And uh, our sister Monica, we pray that you will heal her, Lord, uh, completely, so that she can uh, testify to your glory. Father, be with me as we continue this study, and I present the words of truth to the congregation. 
May they be your words, not my own. And uh, may it be effectual to bring uh, people into the truth. Uh, Lord, bless us as we strive for unity, and that we come together and we love each other as you love us. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. continue in our series here in which I entitled this is my body defining God's church this particular uh, study here this morning is part two of what I entitled all for one and if you recall from part one that was a couple uh, weeks ago I mentioned that in the novel the three musketeers and many people have uh, may not have read them the novel but they've heard of it it's a novel by Alexander Dumas uh, the group of, uh, of French musketeers named Athos and Porthos and Aramis and D'Artagnan, they stayed loyal to each other through thick and thin. And uh, their motto was one for all and all for one. But sometimes, you know, it's referred to as all for one and one for all. But what we saw here was there was a unity through thick and thin, no matter the circumstances. And I thought, and, and as I thought about that, I presented this that, I think it's an accurate motto for the kingdom of God in describing His relationship uh, towards His creatures, His servants, and His servants towards Him. Our loving God gave His Son for all, and those who accept that most precious gift give all for Him, you see. So I think it's an apt motto for the love and unity that exists in the family of God. Now we've been studying what the Bible has to say in defining God's church. And remember, we've been looking for a number of weeks now, we've been looking at uh, ten primary uh, characteristics. Um, there are more, of course, that, but they tend to fall within these. And these actually build upon each other as well. And so, remember, the church of God will have the nature of Christ. It will be made up of people who are born again, believers. Now, I'm not talking about the tares. There will be tares. We're in the church militant. We'll get to that. Uh, I think even next week I may be speaking to the, uh, about the tares. Um, the church of God will be a spiritual house. Uh, we'll have Jesus as the head. It'll be of the spiritual seed of Abraham, not of the fleshly seed of Ishmael. That means that they will be a covenant-keeping people uh, who keep the commandments. And uh, uh, the Sabbath we, we've studied was a sign of that. Um, the church will be a light that leads the way to Christ, who is the head of the church. Uh, the church will have the gifts and bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And that included, remember, the testimony of Jesus, which we found was the spirit of prophecy. We have a prophet, uh, Ellen White. Uh, the church will stand upon the foundation of truth, especially present truth, which we know in our time is the three angels' messages of Revelation 14. Uh, the church will have the faith of Jesus. We talked about this in study. The righteousness by faith. Uh, the church will keep the law of God. All ten commandments by faith. That's what righteousness by faith is. Uh, including the fourth commandment. Um, but not at the exclusion of all the other nine. See, keep all ten commandments. Uh, the church will be vibrant. That means it will be healthy and living in Christ. It's going to be a true fellowship of believers. And uh, number ten... Uh, the church is that going to have a godly love and unity in doctrine, and it's going to be organized for service. 
And so uh, we're going to continue uh, our look at number 10, the body of Christ, His church will have a godly love and unity. Uh, remember, one for all and all for one. Uh, we've learned that um, it is love that is the basis of true unity. It is agape. You know, we talked about this before. It is agape that is the basis. This love of God, the, the love that comes from God, has its source in God, that is the basis of true unity among His people. Jesus says in John chapter 15, and verse 9, He said, As the Father hath, hath loved me, so have I loved you. And then He says, Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments... Remember Jesus had said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And here he's saying, continue in my love. If you keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love. Even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is what some people don't understand about the commandments. They see them as a bunch of don'ts that uh, take away our joy. Well, friends, it only takes away your joy if you're not born again, if you haven't given your life to Jesus and love Jesus. Because if you love Jesus, you'll keep His commandments and you'll realize that your joy will be full in keeping those commandments. You see. Jesus continued, He said in verse 12, He said, This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. And then he says, ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. So we can ask ourselves each day, am I a friend of God? Is God my friend? And I encourage you to start each day going to the Lord and saying, Lord, I want to be your friend today. Pour out your blessings and your mercy and, and your grace upon me so I can walk with thee today. And friends, this love that Jesus is talking about here, this love, you know, keeping the commandments is actually the fruit of love to God. It's, uh, obedience is the fruit of faith, you've probably heard said before. And, and it is the fruit of love towards God and towards each other. And you know, this is the most important thing that we really can have, is this love. You know, as Paul said, if we have everything else but we have not love, we really don't have anything at all. I shared a couple of quotes uh, with you <clears throat> from the prophet. You know, to be united with Christ means that we will each be united in love. Notice what she says here. This is from Signs of the Times, December 28, 1891. Wherever a soul is united to Christ, there is love. Whatever else the character may possess, it is valueless without love. Not love that is soft, weak, sentimental but such love as dwells in the heart of Christ. Without love, everything else profiteth nothing, for it cannot possibly represent Christ, who is love. So you see, friends, when, when we become united with Christ, we will be united in love with each other. And if we are united with Christ, we will be united with each other, uh, um, not just spiritually, we will be united with each other uh, attempt to be anyway, if we can be united physically. We've come together here today on the Sabbath day. We are united in praising God and worshiping God on this holy day. But if we are united with Christ, we will be united with each other. 
Notice this from our high calling, page 96. If we draw nigh to God individually, then don't you see what the result will be? Can't you see that we will draw nigh to one another? We cannot draw nigh to God and come to the same cross without our hearts being blended together in perfect unity, answering the prayer of Christ that they may be one as He is one with the Father. And therefore we should seek in spirit, in understanding, in faith that we may be one, that God may be glorified in us as He is glorified in the Son, and that God shall love us as He loves the Son. And so, you know, friends, we, we walk by faith and we, we, we all have our battles and we all have our, but we don't have to fight a, alone. And when we come to the same cross, as she says, our hearts will be blended together in perfect unity, one with another. This is a part of the characteristic of God's church, which is people. If we follow Jesus, we'll be a member of His church, remember. For where Jesus is, there is His church. We've learned this, haven't we? And to be united with Jesus brings love. It brings agape into our heart and to our disposition as the truth is written into our minds, you see, and into our hearts. John chapter 7, page page 16. John 7 and verse 16. Jesus answered them, this is what He said, My doctrine is not mine, but His that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. The doctrine of Christ, the good news of the gospel, the truth, you see, is is the doctrine of Christ. It's the truth that God is love, not what Satan says. And Jesus says, if any man do his will, if any man does the will of the Father, he's going to know. Well, how does he know? Because he's come to the same cross and his heart is being blended together with others who've come to that cross in perfect unity. Jesus said, He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory, but he that seeketh his glory that sent him. The same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. As I said, friends, the doctrine of Jesus is the truth. The Bible says God cannot lie. And those who follow Him will be following the truth, which is Jesus. And the church, having Jesus, the truth, as the head, the chief cornerstone, is then established upon the truth of God in Jesus. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.16, the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. It's the pillar and ground of the truth because the truth is Jesus and He's the head cornerstone. And when we all come to the same cross, we come to Jesus and we're built upon that cornerstone, which is the pillar and ground of the truth. And so, friends, we find that those who are united with Jesus and their hearts are blended together, will be united in doctrine. For their doctrine will be Jesus, who is the pillar and ground of the truth. And those who are united in the doctrine of Christ are members of the church of God, whether they're scattered at the moment or organized. Being united in Christ will lead to being organized, though, for service, friends. Reaching others with the doctrine of Christ. Bringing them to the same cross. 
so that our hearts can be united and blended together in perfect unity. You see, members of the body, members of the church will learn the attributes of Christ and exhibit them in their walk each day by faith in Christ, trusting Him by grace, to live as Christ, by agape. We will love people more and more as He did. We will esteem others better than we esteem ourselves. And this is what Paul was talking about. In Philippians chapter 2, Verse 1, Paul says, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. But what mind is he talking about? He says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. This is all part of it, see? But what mind? How, how can, what's he mean by being one accord of one mind? Verse 5, he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He's giving us the example of what kind of mind we are to have. How we can have the love for each other and fellowship of the Spirit. How we can be one accord, one mind, in unity. We have to have the mind of Jesus. We have to have a mind. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he gives the example. Who being in the form of God, being God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. It wasn't something he highly esteemed. It wasn't something that he he strove to be. At all costs, you see. How do we know? He says in verse 7, He made himself of no reputation. He took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Wow. The Creator becoming created? And being found in fashion as a man, He humbled Himself. Even as a man, He was humble. And became obedient unto death. He didn't just die any ordinary death of natural causes. Paul says, even the death of the cross, the worst death known that time to mankind. The worst way to die. Most humiliating way. Jesus humbled himself by becoming human in order to save humanity. He chose to set aside his glory and take the form of a servant so that we may be an heir to the kingdom through his merit. And when we accept the Son, we become like Him in nature. And we too take the form of a servant as He did. And this is what Paul is saying. We will be, our minds will be fashioned like that of, of Christ. The desires of Christ will become our desires. We will become humble. We will become a servant. We will esteem others better than ourselves. Manuscript Releases, Volume 18, page 162. Those who are in any way connected with the Church of God must be humble, revealing the meekness of Christ. And Jesus said, 
Matthew 23, verse 11, he said, But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. The principle Jesus is giving us here strikes at the very root of pride, friends, or the desire to exalt oneself in the opinion of others. The Bible tells us that pride and selfishness is the root of all sin. It starts in the mind. And that's why Paul is saying, let this mind, this mind that was in Jesus, be your mind. We'll become a servant. We'll become humble, meek and lowly, as our Savior was. So friends, the the kingdom of heaven is essentially a matter of rendering service to God and to one's fellow men, not receiving it from them. And true love is essentially a matter of giving love rather than of demanding it. He is greatest who loves God and his fellow men most and serves them best while putting himself last. This is what Jesus is telling us. And I will share that there will never exist true unity in the home or in the church while someone is striving for first place. Friends, we must, by God's grace, become humble. And it starts with allowing Jesus on the throne of our heart. Now, some think that such unity is impossible because we are all so different. But remember that the disciples were not all alike. Yet the cross of Christ united them. And Jesus didn't make them all robots where they all became identical. No, they still had different opinions and personalities and and likes and dislikes. Yet they were all of one accord. How? How was that possible? We see, remember friends, that the key to unity with each other is to have the presence of the love of God in one's heart. To have Jesus living within the heart and mind is the foundation of oneness with God and each other. And this unity leads to organizing upon upon gospel order that's laid out in the gospels, laid out in scriptures, which we'll address uh, in greater detail in the future studies here. We'll get into talking about gospel order. I'll tell you that the, the devil knows that a united and organized people of God will hasten the truth to the world, and so he tries to bring uh, strife in among us. And sad to say, he's done a great work so far. Before we can press together in unity and organization, we must first love each other as Jesus loves us. And to be like Jesus must be our highest goal in life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? The devil hates our Lord. And he hates each one of us because we love Jesus, friends. The devil knows how powerful the love of Christ is. The mighty things that can be wrought when there are people filled with agape. He knows this. Satan must divert our attention away from Christ, which will lead to disunity among us. And he has been very effective in doing this to a large degree. So how do we come together in unity and organize as the people of God? Well, friends, we must press together in the love of Christ. And if we're to organize according to gospel order, we've got to be doing it for the right reason. And that reason is love for Jesus. Love for each other. So we must become one with Him. And Jesus tells us how to be 
one with Him and each other. He tells us many times in His Word, and I want to look at a couple with you. I want to begin with the Gospel of John, John 15. We'll go back to that. John 15, verse 4. Abide in me and I in you, he says. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye accept no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. You're not going to produce any good fruit without Christ. There's not going to be any unity, any love without Christ. He says in verse 6, If a man abide not in me, he's cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words, here's a key, friends, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Why? Because whatever we ask will be according to the will of God. Because his words are abiding in us. Herein is my Father glorified, he says in verse 8, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Which we looked at a moment ago. Now how do we abide in Christ? Will we speak with him in prayer, don't we? We, we study His Word each day. That's, that's how His words come into us. <laughs> they come into our mind. And by obeying His voice, that's how we abide with Him. We keep His Ten Commandments by grace. We love God with all our heart and our neighbor as ourselves. That's how we abide with Christ. You see, by beholding, we become changed. And And as we continue to behold Christ each day, we become changed more and more into His image. And what does this do in regard to unity and love for others who believe? Notice this. Selected Messages, Volume 3, page 352. Pressed together is the command I hear from the captain of our salvation. Pressed together. Where there is unity, there is strength. All who are on the Lord's side will press together. We're not going to be out there saying, I'm going to be my own independent scattered atom somewhere. That's not God's will. That's not gospel order. That's not unity. There is need of perfect unity and love among believers in the truth, she says. And anything that leads to dissension is of the devil. Anything that leads to dissension is of the devil. The Lord designs that His people shall be one with Him as the branches are one with the vine. Then they will be one with each other. You see the key? When we become one with Jesus, then we will be one with each other. Even though we may be at different personal mile markers, as you've heard me say, in our, our journey with Him to the kingdom of God. We're going to be on the same road. We're going to be on that same road to the heavenly kingdom. But at different personal mile markers in our sanctification. And then the common denominator of all this is love for Jesus. 
And as we just you know read a few moments ago, it's not a love that's sentimental. It's agape. It's esteeming one others better than ourselves. It's agape in our hearts, and that can only be supernaturally placed within us by God. Do you notice that she said that any dissension is of the devil? What is dissension? Webster's 1828 Dictionary says this about dissension. Disagreement in opinion. Usually a disagreement which is violent. Make note of that. Producing warm debates or angry words. Contention in words. Strife. Discord. Quarrel. Breach of friendship and union. Dissension doesn't bring unity, does it? Contentious quarreling is essentially the definition of dissension. Proverbs 18.6 says, A fool's lips enter into contention, and his mouth calleth for strokes. It's a violent quarreling, a contentious quarreling. Leads to, as Webster said, a breach of friendship and union. Let me ask you something. Did Jesus have to deal with dissension or contentious quarreling among his disciples when he was here? Oh, friends, so much so that he said a special prayer for them to be one with him and each other. Is there dissension in the ranks of God's people today? You see, this prayer was not only for the disciples at that time, but for all disciples, no matter the generation. As we'll see. Let's go to chapter 17 of John. The entire chapter, you'll find, except for the first few words of the first verse, is a prayer of Jesus. There were 12 human beings present when this prayer was offered. Now remember, Judas was already down at the high priest's palace at this time, and they were preparing to arrest Jesus. But the other 11 disciples were with Jesus. And they were not in the upper room any longer. They'd left, and they were on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. They were just outside the garden on the other side of the brook, Kidron. And on the way, Jesus had talked to them about the true vine, which we were reading about, John 15. Now, Jesus is offering this one last prayer before He goes to offer His life for the sins of the world. First, you'll notice this prayer was not for the world. Okay? Let's take note of that. It wasn't for the world. Now, Jesus wanted to save the world... Right, But John 17 and verse 9 says, I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for them which hast, thou hast given me, for they are thine. So this is a prayer that Jesus prayed specifically for his disciples. This prayer is not for the world. It's never going to be answered in the world, friends. But it was prayed specifically for the disciples of Jesus. This prayer was not prayed only for those 11 disciples, that were gathered around Jesus. This prayer, this prayer was made for you and me as well. Who claim to be followers of Jesus. And so the eleven disciples are gathered around Jesus at this time. And he's, he's in the middle and he's praying for them. It's just a few moments bef- now before he's going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And notice what he says in John 17 and verse 20. He says, Neither pray I for these alone, 
but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Friends, do you believe in Jesus? Then this prayer is for you. Why do you believe in Jesus? It's because of the testimony of these men kneeling around Jesus that night. They were the ones commissioned to tell the whole world the story of Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus because of their word, well then, friends, this prayer is for you. And Jesus prayed for you before He went into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, before He was to be scourged and crucified. Do you suppose He had something of an extreme importance uh, on His mind? Now this is a prayer the devil claims cannot be answered. And he's working with all of his power to see that it will not be answered. I want you to notice what Jesus was praying for concerning all of his disciples. Verse 21, he says, that they all may be one. (laughs) That they all may be one. As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. What was it that that Jesus wanted for his followers? Did he want dissension among his followers? No. Did he want one disciple lording over another? No. He wanted them to be one. One in spirit. One in Christ-like character. He wanted them to be one. He wanted them to be in unity. As Paul said in our scripture reading that we read today, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions, no schisms, no contentious quarreling among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind, that mind of Christ, and in the same judgment. Judgment based on principles, on love for God. And this is what was upmost in the mind of Jesus just before he went into the Garden of Gethsemane. And the devil is determined that this oneness, this unity, will not happen. That's why he he brings tares into the church. That's why he brings confusion because of the tares into the church where people don't know whether it's the church of God or not. This is why we're looking at the characteristics that the Bible lays out. If you study church history, you'll see how the devil has stirred up people so they get to argue about theology and and all sorts of things. I mean, you have to be aware, friends, that in the last several hundred years, many wars on this planet have been started and propagated by people who claim to be followers of God, who claim to be Christians. Do you think it is God who's really behind that? Or is it Satan? Christianity's come into disrepute. People in heathen and Islamic nations and people who worship the Eastern religions, they don't believe in Christianity because they look at Christians and they say, they're worse than we are. There's no draw there. Christ isn't being lifted up. The love of God isn't being lifted up to draw people to Him. So the devil's determined that this prayer of Jesus will never be fulfilled. 
In every church, institution, ministry, and home, the devil's constantly at work to try to stir up strife. So this love, unity, organization can never happen. As Marguerite said, pray for our marriages, pray for our families. We're under attack. Pray for our children. Jesus goes on in verse 22, John 17. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. Friends, the Bible is very clear that God the Father is an intelligence. And God the Son, Jesus, is a separate intelligence. When Jesus was here in this world, His Father was in heaven, wasn't He? And Jesus prayed to His Father, thus two separate intelligences. We can say the same thing about the Holy Spirit. Notice what Jesus said about the two intelligences in John 10 verse 30. He said, I and my Father are one. What does that mean? If they're two separate intelligences, two separate beings, what does it mean to be one? When you break it down, friends, it means that they were one in character, one in purpose. They worked in perfect harmony. Let me ask you, does the the expression perfect harmony sound good to you? Would you rather have perfect harmony or dissension? They work together in perfect harmony. Heaven is a place where there is perfect harmony. If we want to go to heaven where there is perfect harmony, you and I have to ask ourselves a question. Would the harmony in heaven be disrupted if I were to be there? You think God is going to take someone to heaven that would disrupt the harmony that exists there? He kicked out the disharmony. Remember, there was someone in heaven once that disrupted it. You can read about it in Revelation 12. His name was Lucifer. He persuaded a group of angels to rebel with him and the harmony of heaven was disrupted. You see, there was an argument over who should have the authority to rule creation. Now, if the argument was over who should have the authority, then the argument is immediately over the government and the laws of that government. From the book Great Controversy, page 582, the last great conflict between truth and error is but the final struggle of the long-standing controversy concerning the law of God. Upon this battle we are now entering, a battle between the laws of men and the precepts of Jehovah, between the religion of the Bible and the religion of fable and tradition. The Bible says Satan and his angels were cast out of heaven because they warred against the law of God. And today, everyone in heaven keeps the law of God. Do you realize that? There's no one in heaven that has a problem with that. No one that is not convinced about it. The whole universe is finding out what happens to people when they decide not to keep God's law. We have a mess here on earth, don't we? When we decide not to keep God's law, it's a mess. Our joy can't be full, see, if we're not obedient to God. In heaven, they all keep it. They have perfect harmony. And so do you see why the Sabbath Sunday controversy in Christian today is so important? And let me tell you something, friends. The, the real issue is not a matter of a day. The real issue is, who's going to be God? 
Who has the authority to say when we go to church and when we worship? Who do you suppose should have that authority? Do you think you should? Or your preacher should? Or the head of your church should? Or do you think God is the only one who should have that kind of authority? Let me tell you something. In heaven, that question is already solved. and It's been solved for thousands of years. Not everyone here has it solved. But before anyone is taken to heaven, they're going to have to have it solved. Because if they do not believe in keeping God's law, well, they would disrupt and ruin the harmony in heaven. Just one person who didn't believe in keeping God's law would disrupt the harmony of heaven by bringing dissension. Now the devil's determined that on earth we'll not learn this lesson that Jesus was talking about. Let's notice what Jesus says in John 17, 23. The very first part there. He said, I in them and thou in me that they may be made perfect in one. Well, let me ask you, friends. Does the subject of unity have something to do with Christian perfection? Think about that. I'll tell you that it does. I will never have a perfect character and be ready to go to heaven until I understand this subject of being in harmony, in unity with God and His law and with all the rest of His people. His disciples. You know, the ones who keep the law. We've studied this before. Lawbreakers are not a part of God's family. Now, some ignorantly sin. God winks at that. That's not what I'm speaking to. Friends, how do we convince the world that Jesus is who He said He is? What is the strongest proof that can be given that Jesus came and He is the Son of God? This is something God's been trying to get get His people organized and together in perfect unity. That is what it is. The, the, the strongest proof is a body of people joined together in harmony and unity, loving one another as Christ has loved them and organized for service to do His works. That is the strongest proof there is. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14.33, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. Peace and unity in all churches of the saints. God's not the one who brings in the confusion. Do you see why the devil's determined that it's not going to happen? He knows that if this were to happen, the latter rain would be poured out with great power and his end would come sooner rather than later. So he fights against unity. He fights against divine organization. Let me ask you a question. Do you think God the Father is ever going to answer the prayer of Jesus for His people to be one? Remember, the uppermost thing on the mind of Christ just before He was taken from the garden was that His followers would be in harmony, in unity, loving one another. How's it going to happen? Well, remember, friends, the key to unity is agape. And with this love comes humility. And we will never be one with God and each other without love and humility. You believe that? How will we become one? One way we could learn a little about how is to find out how it happened to the disciples. Just a few weeks after this prayer of Christ was given, it was answered. 
Did you know that? Acts 2 verse 1 says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. They were all of what? One accord in one place. In one accord means they were unanimous. Did the disciples have love, unity, and harmony among themselves on the day of Pentecost? The Bible says they did, but you know, it took the cross to get them there. And when we come to the same cross and love Jesus, we will have love for each other. Remember? When we have this same love for each other that Jesus has for us, we will be united upon the doctrine of Christ and we will begin to organize for service. This is exactly what the disciples experienced just before Pentecost, where they received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in power to accomplish the works of Christ. And this will be repeated, friends, with greater power just before Jesus returns. God will have a united people to pour out His power, to finish the work. Give the loud cry. A statement on the subject of unity that I want to look at. I want to look at it with you for a few moments here. Is found in the book The Desire of Ages. It's on page 296. It's just a paragraph. Now, this chapter is about the ordination of the twelve apostles. So, you know, do you think that the ordination of the twelve apostles has anything to do with the subject of church organization? <laughs> well, yeah, it does. Does this have anything to do with the subject of Christian unity? It most certainly does. How God can take so many people of varying dispositions and personalities and bring them together into a perfectly organized movement consisting of love, unity, and harmony. Friends, that's a miracle. And God wants to perform that miracle with us. That was what Christ's prayer was. Now notice what Desire of Ages says. And I'm going to read this, this statement, this paragraph first, and then I'm going to break it down a little, little at a time. A little by little here. Desire of Ages, page 296. Speaking about the apostles here. The apostles differed widely in habits and disposition. There were the publican, Levi Matthew, and the fiery zealot, Simon, the uncompromising hater of the authority of Rome, the generous, impulsive Peter, and the mean-spirited Judas. Thomas, true-hearted yet timid and fearful, Philip, slow of heart and inclined to doubt, and the ambitious, outspoken sons of Zebedee with their brethren. These were brought together with their different faults, all with inherited and cultivated tendency to evil. But in and through Christ, they were to dwell in the family of God, learning to become one in faith, in doctrine, in spirit. They would have their tests, their grievances, their differences of opinion. But while Christ was abiding in the heart, there could be no dissension. There's a key. His love would lead to love for one another. The lessons of the Master would lead to the harmonizing of all differences, bringing the disciples into unity till they would be of one mind and one judgment. Christ is the great center. And they would approach one another just in proportion as they approached the center. That's a remarkable, remarkable paragraph. Now let's break it down a little bit. Let's back up to the beginning. She says, The apostles differed widely in habits 
and disposition. Let me ask you, do you suppose there are people in the church who differ widely in habits and disposition? (laughs) In the true church of God, there is in fact people who differ widely in habits and disposition. Now, think about that for just a moment by itself. Does that present a problem for gaining unity? Well, it certainly does. It certainly does. She goes on, there were the publican, Levi Matthew. Let me ask you a question. Were the publicans rich or poor? They were rich. So we have a rich person in their group. And then she says, and the fiery zealot, Simon. Well, the zealots were those who hated Rome so much they wanted to stir up an insurrection. You know, a civil war. They wanted to stir up a rebellion. They wanted to topple the government so they could establish their own government. One of these fiery zealots was a disciple of Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever had to deal with a fiery zealot? Now, there are people who don't even like being around fiery zealots. She says, Simon, this zealot, was the uncompromising hater of the authority of Rome. He was a dangerous person for Jesus to associate with, don't you think? But he was in the church. There were some disciples you know a little better, like she says, the generous, impulsive Peter. It was dangerous for Jesus to associate with him also because he always seemed to be sticking his foot in his mouth. She says, then there was the mean-spirited Judas. Let me ask you, do, do you see how they had cause for a lot of contention and dissension? She says, Thomas, true-hearted yet timid and fearful. Philip, slow of heart and inclined to doubt. You know, have you ever had to deal with someone who's just plain slow? <laughs> there are people in the world that are just slower than others. Philip was one of these slow people. Have you ever worked with someone who is fast and whatever you can do, they can do in half the time? There's nothing that tries the patience, let me tell you, of a really efficient, fast person more than to have them work beside someone who's slower. I had a guy that worked for me, Mike. Mike Criswell. You remember Mike? Well, Mike had one speed. (laughs) He didn't have a hurry-up speed. He didn't have a slow-down speed. Mike had one speed. And you really learn to be patient with Mike. He did good work, but he just had one speed. Philip was slow, and he was also inclined to doubt. Then there was the ambitious, outspoken sons of Zebedee. You know, I find it interesting that the three leading disciples all had a problem with being outspoken, or what you would call being rash and impetuous. James and John were ambitious and outspoken. But notice what she says. She says, These were brought together with their different faults, all with inherited and cultivated tendencies to evil. But in and through Christ, they were to dwell in the family of God. You see, you can only dwell in the family of God in and through Christ. Out of the twelve, eleven of them are going to be saved. They're going to live in heaven throughout eternity and never fight again. And the reason they will be in heaven and will never fight again is because 
by the grace of God, they learn to live here on earth in love, harmony, and unity. How's this unity going to happen? Notice what she says. In and through Christ they were to dwell in the family of God, learning to become one in faith, in doctrine, in spirit. They were to become one in three ways. She says, in faith, doctrine, and spirit. Now friends, that's the same condition 144,000 are going to be in before Jesus comes. Do you want to be a part of that group? It's not going to be one person physically, but one in faith, doctrine, and spirit. In other words, they don't just gather on Saturdays and say, we're in unity because we gather on Saturdays. No, friends. One in faith, doctrine, and spirit. She goes on. She said, they would have their tests, their grievances, their differences of opinion. Now I want to tell you that Christian unity does not mean that all of a sudden our minds all think the same. When you look at the information, you you may come to a different conclusion than someone else. Just look at people that get married. <laughs> yeah, look at marriages. <laughs> but through time, they come closer and closer together in marriage and become more and more one in unity. But she said they would have differences of opinion. They would think differently about different things. Christ doesn't take people and just refashion their minds so they're all like robots and when you show them something, they all respond exactly the same way. That's not Christian unity. Christian unity doesn't take an extrovert and make him an introvert. It does not change your basic personality structure. They would have differences of opinion. But she goes on, she says, while Christ was abiding in the heart, there could be no dissension. When a group of people comes together who love Jesus, they'll have differences of opinion, but there will be no dissension. And this really is a miracle, friends. People who are as different as the disciples of Jesus and yet have no dissension among them whatsoever, that is a miracle. How does that happen? She says, His love would lead to love for one another. Friends, does Jesus love you? Jesus loves you more than your spouse, more than your father, your mother, or anyone who has ever loved you in this world. All of their love is like a little trickle compared with the ocean of God's love. Do you believe that? And when you get close to Jesus and see how much He loves you and you begin to receive His love and then you look at your brother or sister and start to realize that you know, Jesus loves them as much as He loves, he loves me... It affects the way you treat them. She says, His love would lead to love for one another. When I receive the love of Christ in my heart, it will lead me to love my brothers and sisters because I will realize that He loves and He died for them the same as He loved and died for me. Now notice this. And this is important for us to understand if we are to have the gospel order that Christ wishes for us to have. See, what we're missing, friends, we're missing this unity, this pressing together. We're scattered right now. We've come out of fallen organizations. And Christ is leading us to love Him more, to love each other, and to organize. 
And this is important for us to understand. She says the lessons of the Master would lead to the harmonizing of all differences. Harmonizing how many differences? All. All differences. As we come together out of love for Jesus, we will have differing opinions and understanding. But through His lessons, our differences will be put away from us. We will come together in faith, doctrine, and spirit. We will press together. She says, bringing the disciples into unity till they would be of one mind and one judgment. Christ is the only, Christ is the great center, excuse me, and they would approach one another just in proportion as they approached the sinner. So friends, as I get closer to Jesus and you get closer to Jesus, what's going to happen? We're going to get closer to each other and there will be a harmony and fellowship among fellow Christians that many people have been strangers to and some have never known in their whole life. Remember that a great part of Christianity, a great reason, a great character trait is to have fellowship with the saints. That's what one of the characteristics of the church we looked at. And I'm not just talking about coming together for worship and fellowship every Sabbath only. We also are to spend time together in the work itself and in good recreation too. That's what a family does. Too many of us limit our association with each other to just the Sabbath day. This is just what the devil wants to happen. You realize that? It's easier to bring dissension in among acquaintances than it is family and friends who love each other. And if we're drawing nearer to Christ, we'll be drawing closer and closer to each other. If we fellowship with Christ, we will fellowship with each other. The same time we are coming closer to each other, we will be getting farther away and more out of harmony with some other people. Jesus says this. John 17, verse 14. He says, I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but thou that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So if you get close to Jesus, who's going to hate you? The world. I see things on these social you know, networks and things. Christians come out and, and they're, they're, they're upset because they're showing the hypocrisy of the world and how they treat Christians. Well, duh, friends. The world hates Christ. <laughs> you're not going to win them over by saying, you're a big hypocrite. You need to treat us the same. It's not going to happen. You know, God said there in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman. <laughs> I just shake my head. And I'm like, don't you know? But they've had false teachers fill their heads with fables and lies that the world's going to be brought to peace. Jesus is going to come and reign a thousand years. Oh, friends. There's going to be increasing unity among those who are drawing closer to Jesus, taking them more and more out of touch, out of harmony with this world. 
Jesus was out of harmony with this world. And if he abides in your heart, you'll be out of harmony with, with this world just as he was. And some people don't understand that. In addition to loving, God has given us the ability to hate. Did you know that? That's what enmity is. It's a hatred. The Bible teaches we are to both love and hate. When one person loves what another hates and hates what another loves, those people are not going to have unity. Oh, they may be within the same religious organization, but they're not going to have unity. And if they are within the same religious organization, it should tell you something about that type of organization. It's not from God. Psalms 97.10 says, Ye that love the Lord hate evil. Well, if you love the Lord, you're going to hate evil. That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Well, friends, what was it that caused Jesus to go to the cross? It was evil. He died for our sins. And if you love evil, you hate the Lord. And if you love the Lord, you hate evil because you hate that which sent Jesus to the cross. The first angel's message says, Fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come. Revelation 14, 7. What does it mean to fear God? It means a reverent awe. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the froward mouth do I hate. Friends, if you love God, you're going to hate evil. Amos 5.15, Hate the evil and love the good and establish judgment in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious unto the remnant of Joseph. Hate the evil, love the good, he says. Friends, if you want God to be gracious to you, to you, if you want to receive His salvation, if you want to be covered and sheltered when the plagues come upon this world, you must not only love what is good, but you must hate evil. You'll be out of harmony with the world because the world loves evil. In order to truly hate evil, Jesus must be abiding within you. In order to be in perfect love and unity among God's people, there must be divine love in the heart. And there must be divine organization. An organization built upon Christ who loves what is good and hates what is evil. You cannot have perfect order or perfect harmony without such organization. Uh, an organization that, that loves, professes to love good and also is indifferent to evil is not God's organization. It is apostate. It is fallen. An organization that professes to be God's and condones sin is a con an organization that loves evil. <laughs> you cannot have perfect order or perfect harmony without divine organization built upon Christ who loves what is good and hates what is evil. Notice this from Spalding and Megan Collection, page 121. An army in battle would become confused and weakened unless all worked in concert. If the soldiers should act out their own impulsive ideas without reference to each other's positions and work, they would be a collection of independent atoms. They could not do the work of an organized body. So the soldiers of Christ must act in harmony. They alone must not be cherished. If they do this, the Lord's people in the place of being in perfect harmony, of one mind, one purpose, and consecrated to one grand object 
will find efforts fruitless, their time and capabilities wasted. Have you experienced enough of that? I will tell you, I have. Union is strength, she says. A few converted souls acting in harmony, acting for one grand purpose, under one head, will achieve victories at every encounter. She says, a few converted souls, friends. Let me ask you a question. Do you want your work for the Lord to be fruitless and all your efforts to come to naught? Or would you like to achieve victories at every encounter? If so, you have to be organized as God would want. You have to be a part of an organized body with each member working toward one objective. In order to have the unity for which Jesus prayed, there must be an organized body. There must be what we call church organization. Beloved, Jesus wants to bring you and me into unity of faith, unity of doctrine, unity of spirit, unity of mind, unity of judgment into His church. Because it's all found there in His church. And as we get closer and closer to Him, we're going to be more in harmony with each other that are getting closer and closer to Him. And we're going to be getting farther apart from those who aren't. As I've been saying, one way that perfect harmony is brought about is through proper church organization, proper gospel order, as it's referred to sometimes. But we'll never have the unity for which Jesus prayed in in John 17, until we become like Him. So as we study gospel order and we work out our differences, let's do so with Jesus at the forefront. Amen? Amen. Jesus said in John 17, 26, Father, I will that they also whom Thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which Thou hast given me, for Thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. To be one with each other as Christ has prayed means to behold His glory and be one with Him where He is, friends, in faith, in doctrine, and in spirit. And when you're one with Christ, you are a member of His church. We just have to get organized, friends. Let's answer the prayer of Christ to be one. One for all and all for one. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You so very, very much for Your wonderful your wonderful grace, your wonderful word for your son Jesus. We're so thankful that you love us with an undying love, that you change not, that you pour out all the blessings of heaven in Christ for our salvation. Father, we pray you forgive us our sins. We pray that you fill our hearts with enmity to evil and love for you and a love for each other. It starts at the cross. May we be brought to the foot of the cross so that our hearts may be blended into perfect unity. Help us to organize to finish this work, Lord, we pray in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. Friends, our closing hymn for today.